will be reading from John chapter 10, verses 22 through 42. Please stand for the reading of God's word, if you are able. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple, in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The work that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe, because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, It is not written in your law. I said, I said, you are gods, if he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him, whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the Son of God. If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did, not, did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. This is the Word of God. It's an understatement to say that 2020 has been a difficult year. We've been struck by wave after wave of troubles. We all need a place of stability and security. Uh, one prominent actor who actually endured the travails of the coronavirus was asked the question of how he made it through. And this is his answer. How do you go on? In the movie Greyhound, Krauss, the main character, has a little card that says, yesterday, today, and forever. That's all we have as human beings, and that's all we have in the midst of the 19 different crises that we're facing right now. Between COVID-19, worldwide economic disaster, what happened to George Floyd, the great reckoning that we're all going through, what do we have that we can put faith in? Well, we can have an understanding of yesterday, we can have a plan for today, and we can have hope for forever. That's it. That's my wisdom. It ain't much, but is there anything else? Today's passage answers, yes, there is. And it's a person a person who helps us understand from a divine perspective 
what was happening yesterday. A person who gives us perspective and direction for today. And a person who promises eternity and proved it. He calls himself the Good Shepherd. Let's pray. Our Father, the truths that we hear this morning uh, may be ones we've heard before. The question is, have we allowed them to become real in our lives because they are real and they are true? Let each of us open our, our lives to the Spirit of God and that wherever we are on our spiritual journey, God would open our eyes to see who Jesus Christ is and what that means for our lives. In Jesus' name, we pray. When I was struggling as a father, I sought out a variety of counselors and finally landed on a Christian child psychiatrist. And he directed me to a book by John Bowlby called Secure Base. John Bowlby is the father of the theory of attachment, which is widely accepted across all of psychology. And essentially, it talks about the importance of parents and caregivers to bond in love with their children. And the theory says that primary caregivers who are available and responsive to an infant's needs allows the child to develop a sense of security. The infant knows the caregiver is dependable, which creates a secure base from which the child can explore the world. I experience this uh, almost on a weekly basis when we take care of my granddaughter. We'll be walking on the street with her, and if somebody approaches with a dog or if a boisterous child comes at us, she will immediately come behind my legs or Karen's legs and, and grab a hold of them. When we start to assure her that the dog is nice and you can pet the dog or uh, the child is okay, she begins to step out from that secure base and engage the dog or the child. We all need that kind of security in our lives. Jesus offers that to us in the passage today. He offers us a security today by presenting himself as the good shepherd. He offers himself as security for eternity by promising us eternal life. And we know that he can be our secure base because he himself is God. So that's what we're going to see in the passage. Jesus as the good shepherd, Jesus as the one who offers us eternal life, and the reality that Jesus is God. Last week's passage taught Jesus is the good shepherd. There are false shepherds, there are thieves, there are hirelings, but Jesus is the good shepherd. And whereas good shepherds risk their lives for the sheep, Jesus actually gives his life for the sheep. And so I want to take a moment to, for us to meditate on what it means in our lives that Jesus is the good shepherd. And so we turn to Psalm 23, which says, The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
the good shepherd satisfies all of our core needs in life. He is the one that gives us purpose and meaning. He is the one who brings us into a relationship with God where we are loved, where we belong, where we find community. He is the one who gives us an identity that is meaningful and valuable, for we are invaluable to God himself. We know that because he paid the highest price for us by giving the life of his son. We find our safety and security in Jesus Christ. When we have all of these, we really have no other wants because everything we pursue in life actually is a pursuit of fulfilling these core needs. Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside still waters. He is the one who nourishes our souls. Earlier he has said in this book, I am the bread of life, I am your food. He told the woman at the well, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. I satisfy the thirst. Jesus is that nourishment of our souls. It says he restores our souls. When we are broken by our failures and by our sin, he is the one that rushes to us and receives us in his grace. He is not one who lays the heavy burdens of religion on us, but frees us from those heavy burdens. He restores our souls. And he leads us in the paths of righteousness. How should we live? There's a lot of voices out there that are saying, I have the way, and if you don't follow my way, you're in the wrong way. But Jesus is God. He does not offer a morality that is built on a shifting sand that's going to change tomorrow. A morality that's based on one's personal opinion. But he offers a morality, a path of righteousness that is built on the rock of God himself. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Even in the most difficult times in life, we know because God is sovereign, because Christ is the way, that nothing can happen to us that's outside of the perfect, all-wise, sovereign will of God. And when it comes that day that we walk that valley of the shadow of death and we come to its end, death is not the end of all. It is the beginning of forever. Jesus is the epitome of the good shepherd. And so, as Eric shared last week, there are those who are not good shepherds. And Jesus was pointing to the religious leaders of the day. And so this passage opens with that understanding as we read verses 22 and 23. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. Now, I hope you have come to, to enjoy the imagery that John portrays in his book. Every event, every festival points to Jesus in one way or another. And so the Feast of Dedication also points to Jesus. 
So the Feast of Dedication, also known as Hanukkah, is a remembrance of the rededication of the temple in 165 BC. See, the Seleucid kingdom had come down and taken control of Israel and Jerusalem. And when Antiochus Epiphanes became emperor, he went into Israel and slaughtered a number of Jewish people, took over the temple and desecrated it by setting up a, an idol of Zeus to be worshipped, and he slaughtered pigs on the altar of sacrifice. And so when Judas Maccabees led a revolt and won back Jerusalem, they purified the temple and they rededicated it. And so John says this is a backdrop today to, to Jesus' day. And it's because the religious of leaders of the day were desecrating the temple of God. They made it a house of merchandise, a marketplace where the Gentiles were kept from coming to God as they could. They went through the motions in their worship through religious rituals rather than a real heart, deep relationship with God. But Jesus is the one who comes to free Israel, to free everyone from that religious system that just laid burdens on people. He came as the true temple, as he said in John chapter 2. So, Verse 24 says, this is the setting, and so uh, the Jews gather around Jesus at this time, and they say, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. So we might think that these are seekers by asking, you just tell us, are you the Christ or not? But we know from the context, these are not seekers of truth. These are people who have already rejected Jesus. They ask this question because in some way they want to use it against Jesus. For their understanding of Messiah is he's going to come and he's going to free us from anything to which we are enslaved. And at this moment it would be Rome. And that was not Jesus' mission. So if Jesus answers, yes, I'm the Messiah, they will show precisely how he does not measure up to the Messiah that the Jewish people were waiting for. And so Jesus gives a, a cryptic answer. He says, I've told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. See, actions speak louder than words. If Jesus said, yes, I am the Messiah, they would have used it against him. But instead he says, Look at the works. What do these works say about me? And what they really say is, God's hand is upon him. A couple chapters earlier, the crowd, many people in the crowd actually said, in essence, Jesus has performed more miracles than we could ever expect from Messiah. His works proved he was Messiah. His works proved he was everything he said he was. But they wouldn't believe in verses 26 and 27. He says, you don't believe. Despite all these works 
miracles that nobody refuted. They just deflected. They, nobody could refute them. All these miracles you still don't believe. The reason you don't believe is you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. What he's saying is you have a blindness. You are blind to all that God is doing right now. Travis brought it out two weeks ago when the story of the Jesus healing the blind man and the religious leaders come and say, are you saying we're blind? And Jesus says, if you say you can see, you're actually blind. It's only when you realize you can't see, that you don't know it all, that you don't have the answers. That's when you open yourselves up to truth. But as long as you think you have the answers, as long as you think you have no need for a Savior, you are blind. And that's where most people are. We, we are trusting in our religious works or our goodness, and we are blind to our need for a Savior. See, there's three things we need to know. One, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Two, we can't make up for our sin through some personal righteousness. And three, God is a just God and he judges sin. When we open our eyes to those three facts, we will cry out to God, I need a savior because I can't save myself. In John 16, Jesus is going to talk about the work of the Holy Spirit. And he's going to say he comes to convict us of sin, of righteousness, that we can't, we can't make it, and judgment. God does judge sin. When the Holy Spirit does that, then our eyes open to what Christ has done on the cross for us. See, it's the Spirit of God. We're all going along until the Spirit of God convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment, prepares our hearts to believe in Jesus. Think of the story of Paul, Saul, who became Paul. He was a persecutor of the Jews. Excuse me, he was a persecutor of the Christians. He hated the Christians. And so he was traveling to Damascus to, to, to arrest Christians. But what happens? God strikes them down. Jesus appears to him, and all of a sudden, there's a conversion. Paul wasn't seeking God, but God broke through. And that's what he does with his sheep. So Christians, let us not ever think we're better than anybody else. We have faith in Christ because God sought us. He knocked us off our horses one time or another to see Jesus for who he really is. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. I follow them. So Jesus says, verse 27 and 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. So, if we want security for today, entrust ourselves to Jesus as the good shepherd. But he offers even more than that. He offers us security for eternity. Right here, I give them eternal life. 
They will never perish. Do we live in light of the eternal life that Jesus Christ gives us? Does that change our entire perspective of what's happening now? Or anything that befalls us here? We know the end of the story. No matter what happens in this life, the last chapter is, and he, she lives happily ever after in the presence of God in eternal life. When Stephen was about five years old, my son, I used to take him on visits with me. Uh, and there was one particular visit that was really meaningful to him. And it was a woman so appropriately named Angel who had a brain tumor. And we would visit her in the rehab and Stephen would sit on her lap and just enjoy her. And she just, it just filled her to know his, his presence, have his presence there. And of course, visit after visit, she gradually declined until one day we got the news that she had died. So I was concerned about how to break the news to Stephen. And so I said, Stephen, I, I need to tell you, Angel passed away. All of a sudden, he lit up and he said, you mean she's all better? I said, that's right. It's a whole different perspective and we have, eter we have eternal life on what happens here. Jesus promises us that eternal life and he says, nobody can take it from you. No one can snatch it from my hand. And then he doubles down on that. And he says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. You who believe in Jesus Christ, you are held in the hand of Jesus. And he says, and you are held in the Father's hand. See, if, if I have something in my hand and I am holding it tight and I'm not going to let go, the only one who can take it from me is somebody who is greater and stronger than me to open my hand. And Jesus says it very clearly, no one is greater than my Father. No one can take you out of Jesus' hand or the Father's hand, they, and they are one. Now, there are many Christians who think that Christians can lose their salvation. And, and they believe this in part because there are some verses that seem to say that. But we properly understand those verses in their context and in the purpose of their book we'll see that that's not what they're teaching. They don't contradict passages like this that speak of such great security in God's hand. A second reason they question uh, eternal security is they believe that if someone teaches it, they're giving license to sin. They're saying, if I'm secure and I know I've got heaven with me and I've got relationship with God forever, then what keeps me from sinning? I can go out and sin all I want and still have God. A couple of answers to that. One is, when a person becomes a Christian, they become born again. And what they want isn't 
to do all the sin they can. What they want is to please and glorify God. But secondly, that's a complete opposite understanding of the Christian life. Fear is not the motivation of the Christian life. Grace and love are. We don't obey God because he's going to get us. We obey God because he got a hold of us. Book after book begins with what Jesus Christ has done for us and then turns and says, therefore, live out the Christian life because of that love, because of that justification of what Christ has done for us. Remember the story, there's a prostitute comes to a dinner and she falls all over Jesus' dirty feet and she washes his feet with her tears. She wipes it with her beautiful hair. She pours out a valuable ointment upon him. And what we see is this woman is worshiping and loving Jesus Christ. She does that out of love. But the message of the passage is, he who is forgiven much loves much. That's the motivation of the Christian life. The realization of the vastness of the love of Christ poured out on us on the cross. The vastness of the forgiveness that we have that draws our hearts to him helps us to fall in love with him and that's why we live the Christian life. Not because God's going to get us. We are secure because Jesus is the good shepherd. We are secure eternally because no one can take us out of his hand. Now, if I personally made that promise to you, it'd be pretty empty promises. But we see in this passage, it wasn't just a man, Jesus, who made these promises. It was a man who is God. He says, I and the Father are one. How do we understand that? Is he really saying he's God? Well, that's precisely how the audience, who knew culturally exactly what Jesus was getting at, that's what they thought, because we see in the next verses, the Jews picked up stones again to stone them. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works for the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, It's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but it's blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. That's exactly what Jesus is saying there. Now, some will, uh, will twist what Jesus means and say, wow, Jesus is saying that he and the Father are one person. And there's, a, uh, there's still some churches today who believe this view, which is called modalism, that's been here uh, pretty much since the first century. And that view says that there is one God and he is one person. And he just changes, changes character or changes modes. He might act as God the Father, present himself as God the Father one moment, then he'll present himself as God the Son, and another time he'll present himself as God the Holy Spirit. And that's not what Jesus is saying here because the word one is not masculine. It's not the Father and I are one person, one man. The word is neuter. I and the Father are one thing. 
we are one in essence. So the doctrine of the Trinity, there is one God who is in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, still stands in light of this. It's what the book of John begins with. In the beginning was the Word, and that's Jesus. The Word was with God. He was distinct from God, and yet he was God. He is one with God, in essence, distinct in person. As they challenge him, Jesus gives a different answer than I would give at the time if I was Jesus, but he knows a little more than I do. So we see in verses 34 through 36, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you're blaspheming me because I said I'm the Son of God? So at first glance, it seems like Jesus is saying, well, wait a second, you're not, I'm not really saying I'm God-God. I'm, I'm, like I'm like the God that the Psalm 82 talks about because men are called gods in that passage. Uh, that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus discombobulates them by pointing to the scripture. But he has a purpose of using this scripture because he indicts the religious leaders of the day. You see, if we understand Psalm 82 more, he's saying that judges, wicked judges, are gods. Not that they're God, but he uses the term gods because they sit in the seat of God. Their mission is to proclaim the words of God, to make the judgments that God would make, but they were doing anything but that. Let me read a little more of Psalm 82. How long will you judge unjustly, show partiality to the wicked, Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. I said you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. You see, those he's calling God are supposed to sit in the seat of God. But they were not bringing justice. And so... As Jesus presents this verse, all of those thoughts are out there. The religious leaders sit in the seat of God, but they are not bringing justice. We saw that two chapters earlier with the blind man, how they cast him out. They wouldn't engage in real discussion and exploration of who Jesus is with him. They, they just cast him out. They cast out anyone who believed in Jesus. They didn't care for true justice. And Jesus isn't saying, I'm like those judges except I'm a good one. He goes beyond this because he says, do you say of whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blasphemy? What he's saying is this. You call them gods. How can you get so riled when the real God has come? And the proof is 
the Father has consecrated me. His stamp of approval is on me. He's shown that through his works. He's shown it through the words I say. He's thrown it, shown it through the testimony of John the Baptist. God has made the declaration, I am who I say I am. And God sent me into the world. God sent me for a divine mission to save the world. I'm not like those judges. I do just. I do judge justly, but I am much beyond them because God has consecrated me and sent me into the world. As one commentator says, Jesus' argument is from the lesser to the greater. If mere men can be called God because of their positions as judges, then how much more should I, whom the Father sanctified and sent to the world, be called the Son of God? Uh, let, me, let me use this. Uh, does anybody know the name of a really good chef, a well-known chef? Some of you must watch these shows. Any? Who? Bobby Flay? Okay, Bobby Flay. So, so imagine Bobby Flay's at a cookout with me, and I'm cooking some hot dogs, and I burn them. And Will's there and says, Hey, chef, could I have one of those? And then he starts talking to somebody, he talks to this Bobby Flay, and he says, so what do you do for a living? You're a, he says, I'm a chef. And he said, you're a chef? I, you know, you don't, you're not dressed like a chef. You know, where's your chef's hat? You're not a chef. And he says, hey, if you called Bruce a chef, <laughs> what do you think you should call me? And that's what Jesus is saying. God has consecrated me and sent me on a mission. Where do we find our security? Jesus offers it as the good shepherd for all we're going through now and tomorrow. Jesus offers us the security for eternity. No one can take us out of his hand. We know this is all true because Jesus is God. He proved it through his works. He proved it by the man of God pointing the finger, John the Baptist. He is the Messiah. He proved it by his incredible teaching and ultimately proves it by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus said, John 16, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Our Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus Christ. And people can't explain him away. They try. They try to say he wasn't a historical figure against all evidence. They try to say that disciples made up words of Jesus, yet they are so consistent across decades that there is no Jesus if you can't accept his words. Lord, Jesus has come. We worship him today here. He's in our lives. May we allow him to lead us in the path of righteousness and to enjoy him today, tomorrow, and into eternity. Amen.